Clock winding down. That'll do it. The final score is going to end up 55 to 24. Convincingly, the Horn Frogs end that odious losing streak against Oklahoma. Welcome to the Chatting Yardage Podcast, presented by Sports Drink. Now, here's your host, Cam Matthews. Welcome to your friendly neighborhood college football podcast. Welcome to Chatting Yardage. Of course, part of the Chatting Average family and brought to you by our friends at Sports Drink. Hello, everybody. Welcome once again to the show. This is your host, Cam Matthews. You can find me on Twitter at HeyCam93. You can also follow and interact with the show at Chatting Yardage on Twitter. Boy, week five. Uh, you know, we went into week five looking at the slate saying, hey, this is the best weekend of college football we've had. In, in quite some time, you know, we had we had five ranked versus ranked matchups, which is the most that we had seen in five years for a regular season weekend. Just a tremendous slate of football games, and, and a slate of football games that I, I think, you know, had large implications of what is to come for certain conferences, what is to come for certain programs. Because by this point, the book has been written, uh, through five weeks on on every single team, you know everything that there is to know about a team is, is there, and so and so this is usually the time of year in which teams will reveal themselves, and, and I think we saw a lot of that on Saturday. But let's go ahead and dive into that. Uh, looking back at last week's pick six games of the week. Uh, first game occurred on Friday night, UCLA over Washington by a final score of 40-32. to 32. A really fun game, a game that finally saw UCLA draw a decent crowd in their home stadium. You know, that is something that, that they've had trouble with uh, this year. A game that they, they weren't perfect on offense on, on this night. And that was really to their detriment. I think it's still very much a, a Heisman front runner. Um, at this point, but you know, UCLA's quarterback, on the other hand, is just as athletic, um, and so uh, just tremendous plays of athleticism in this game. But a very solid, very, uh, very impressive win uh, by the Bruins. Jumping into Saturday, Oklahoma State over Baylor, 36-25. to uh, Oklahoma State continuing to build their case why they should be taken, considered as the top team in the Big 12. Uh, Mike Gundy and his staff have put together just what is a, a very, uh, very impressive, very talented football team and, you know, kind of avenging last year's Big 12 championship loss to Baylor uh, was a really, a really a good step in the right direction uh, for the Cowboys. Ole Miss uh, over Kentucky, 22-19 to in what was arguably the game of the day. Just a, a game that saw Ole Miss and Kentucky both 
make their fair share of mistakes. Um, at times, it felt like uh, they were trying to see who wanted to lose uh, the most in, in certain cases. And, and it's a game that came down to uh, came down to a really a couple of key mistakes by Kentucky uh, there at the end on, on that final drive. Um, you know, there's been plenty said already about Kentucky scoring the, the go-ahead touchdown uh, with less than a minute to go, but then they were called for a legal procedure as the wide receiver was not set yet, and so that knocked them back five yards and nullified it. And then on the very next play, they, they fumbled the ball and Ole Miss recovers, and that's pretty much curtains on that game there. Um, you know, this, this game had Kentucky coming in in the top 10 and that might have been an overranking on their part and so that that was certainly shown on Saturday uh and then you know potentially the same thing is going to happen to Ole Miss now that they're cracking into the top 10 uh so you know this season is beginning to feel like especially for the SEC, you have your teams that are clearly at the top, and then you have a lot of other teams that are going to look like they are top programs, but then potentially get exposed fairly quick. Now over to the ACC, Wake Forest comes out with a very good win over Florida State, 31-21, to handing the Seminoles their first loss on the year. Uh, this is one that, you know, Wake Forest pretty much was in control of the entire game. They, they were out in front for the majority of it. Uh, Florida State made a good run there toward the end, uh, but luckily, Florida, or luckily Wake Forest was able to hold on, but it just, especially with what happens later on in the night game, it certainly adds some, how do you say, some interest into how things could still potentially shake out because Clemson and Florida State still have to play, NC State and Wake Forest still have to play. Um, but, you know, we'll, we'll go ahead and mention uh, Clemson uh, 30 over NC State 20. Uh, a win that, you know, NC State jumped out ahead early in the game. Um it didn't last long. Clemson came storming back and really, really controlled this game. You know, and the final score is a bit of a, a bit of a mi- bit misleading, uh, simply because NC State scored their final touchdown when at the time it was thirty to thirteen, kind of in garbage time with less than a minute to go. That game was pretty much over at that point. Uh, but Clemson showing that you know, for all things considered, they're still the top tier team in the ACC. Um, but you know, a Wolfpack win there would have been interesting, but not meant to be on Saturday night. And then a final pick six game from last week, Mississippi state 42 over Texas A&M 24. Uh, boy, things are, things are not going well at Texas A&M, uh, Mississippi state with a, just like a good win, uh, in conference, you know, after suffering kind of a bad loss to LSU a couple weeks ago, uh, they were able to bounce back and take down the Aggies in college station too. That that's the, that that's the other key thing here. Uh, but we'll get more into Texas A&M's woes, uh, later on in the show. Quick look across the rest of the scoreboard. Uh, from week five, South Carolina over South Carolina State, fifty to ten. Uh, Georgia twenty, Georgia over Missouri, twenty six to twenty two. And what was a nail biter for a lot of Georgia fans? Uh, you know, a couple of weeks in a row that Georgia has looked little, a uh, little shaky. 
Um, and this one kind of came down to the wires. They had to fight back the majority of the game and did not pull ahead until into the fourth quarter. Uh, so a uh, big game there for the dogs to still be able to come out on top. Alabama over Arkansas, 49-26, to uh, a game that kind of felt like Arkansas was there in the very beginning, and then Alabama went ahead and jumped out two scores, but then into the fourth quarter, Arkansas, you know, got within, kind of within striking distance, and then Alabama immediately uh, responds and scores twice to jump back out ahead again, and um, unfortunately, that that will drop Arkansas out of the top 25. Uh, I think they're still a very good team. Um, I think they've just hit a uh, hit a rough patch in their schedule here, uh, but, you know, uh, Arkansas is a team that's, for all things considered, is still in a very good spot. Uh, at this point in time with, with the new head coach. So, uh, you know, you hate to see him go down like that because I think a lot of us were hoping that the, that the Hogs would put up kind of a bigger fight to Alabama than this, but uh, just wasn't meant to be. LSU over Auburn 21-17, to uh, a game that Auburn jumped out 17 to nothing in this game, and then LSU scored 21 unanswered points the remainder of the way uh, to pull out the victory. Uh, you know, Brian Harson's seat has to be getting hotter by the minute, and with the precedent that we've already seen set, where a major program coach has been fired now every single week uh, since the start of the season, it, you have to wonder just how much more time does he have uh, overseeing the Auburn Tigers. And then uh, Florida over Eastern Washington, 52-17, to um, a game that was moved to Sunday due to the hurricane. And uh, I'll just take a quick second to uh, say that any of our listeners that were affected by the hurricane, I hope all is well your way. Um, hopefully uh, you, you made it out okay or with, um, with non-significant damage uh, in your area. So I've, I've been thinking about you guys over the weekend. Um, we, we certainly saw some remnants of that here in central North Carolina, uh, especially on Friday, just real heavy rain, had some flooding in the yard, you know, half of a tree down, that, that sort of thing. But nothing compared to what, uh, what our friends in Florida uh, saw over the weekend. So, uh, been, uh, so definitely thinking, still thinking about you guys. We'll roll into the ACC scoreboard now. Georgia Tech over Pitt, 26-21, to uh, a game in which Georgia Tech was – uh, a 21 and a half point underdog rolling in with an interim head coach taking out the number 24 team in Pitt. So big shout out to the Yellow Jackets and showing some resiliency there. Boy, Pitt, uh, their, their season and expectations for them continue to plummet by the week, it seems. Uh, Boston College with a big win over Louisville, 34 to 33. Uh, you know, BC, a team that has not had a good program in quite some time, uh, pulled out a big win over an, over a conference rival. And then Louisville, uh, you know, we talk about coaches being on the hot seat. You have to wonder about Scott Satterfield because in no way does it feel like the the Cardinals are in a better position now than they were when they hired Satterfield, and at the time, you know, that felt like a home run hire. Um, I can remember even being, as a Carolina fan, you know, seeing Scott Satterfield uh, coming from App and thinking you almost wanted him in Chapel Hill. Well, now, you know, things aren't necessarily working too well in Louisville, so we'll, we'll see how that situation plays out. 
Uh, speaking of Carolina, they take down Virginia Tech by a final score of 41-10. to 10. Carolina, probably their most, their most well-rounded game that they've played this year, both offensively and defensively. Uh, the lowest score they've allowed so far this season to Virginia Tech. Virginia Tech's not necessarily a great team, but what you saw on Saturday was, you know, was better, more fundamental tackling and blocking um, on, on both sides of the ball. So I think, you know, I, it remains to be seen what's going to happen with the Tar Heels the rest of the season. Um, you know, coming into this year, part of me felt like five and seven was very realistic. Um, that, that that was a very realistic outcome this year. Uh, but you know now they're they're already sitting at four and one. They still have some very tough games ahead. You know, of course they've got a they've got Miami uh, this coming Saturday in Miami. They've got uh, you know they'll have Duke later on in the year. They got to play Pitt. Of course, they'll end the season playing NC State. Um, all very tough teams. Uh, and then you know you got to play Georgia Tech at home, which you know you hate to call it a sleepwalk game, but. We've, you see it time and time again, as is the case with Louisville here, where you, you play against a team that you on paper you absolutely should beat and then just doesn't end up happening. So, you know, I think things have to go pretty bad at this point for Carolina to go 5-7 and seven for them to only win one more game. But it still remains to be seen how the rest of their schedule plays out because they have nothing but tougher opponents for the most part moving forward than what they've seen. Syracuse over Wagner, 59 to nothing, a game that saw a running 10-minute clock in the fourth quarter. Uh, very odd. You know, very odd to still see some non-conference cupcake games this late in the season. Uh, but, you know, Syracuse continues to roll undefeated. Uh, they're, they're a team that... Syracuse is a team that is good. They are they are a very good team. They are an explosive offense, and they can make some noise uh, in the ACC this year. And then Duke with a good win over Virginia, thirty eight to seventeen. The Blue Devils have put together a very solid program this year, and I think they're exceeding expectations for many uh, for what was expected. And then you know Virginia just continues its struggles on the season. So. Uh, you know, Duke suddenly feels like a team in the ACC to keep an eye on, especially in the Coastal Division, which is, you know, very much the weaker division of the entire conference. But they're certainly a team to keep an eye on as this season moves forward. Now that, you know, Virginia Tech has suffered a couple conference losses, uh, Virginia is down, Louisville's down. Uh, you know, you almost wonder if if it's going to pretty much come down to Duke and Carolina in terms of who represents the Coastal uh, in in the ACC championship game, which, uh, have fun. All right, uh, Big Ten scores now. Ohio State over Rutgers, 49-10. to 10. Uh, Pretty much a, your standard Ohio State blowout. Michigan, a uh, good win by Michigan, 27-14. to 14. You know, I, we've given Michigan a lot of guff about their non-conference schedule that they've played to this point in the year. Uh, but they came out with a very solid win over Iowa, 27-14, to 14, you know, against what is a very good Iowa defense. Um, and then, you know, by Iowa put double digits on the board, so that's nothing to rub your nose at because that offense is still very bad, uh, but a good solid win for Harbaugh's crew. Penn State over Northwestern 17-7. to Didn't see any of this game. Heard the weather was absolutely horrible, miserable, so shout out to anybody who actually sat through that game uh, and stayed the entire time. Purdue over Minnesota 20-10. to 
uh, you know, Purdue, Purdue's having a solid year so far, um, whereas Minnesota, they, they felt like kind of the favorites in their section of the Big Ten, but now suddenly, you know, losing to Purdue certainly hurts that, and... Uh, it, it, it's 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 an anomaly, not not really an anomaly, but it is curious to watch a team like Minnesota led by a guy like P.J. Fleck, who I feel like, you know, you come into every year with very high hopes because just because of the aura around a coach like P.J. Fleck, they've got the talent and they, they just never have quite figured out how to get over the hump. Um, so, but you know, they're a fun team to watch and he's an easy guy to pull for, uh, but you know, they just can't, haven't quite put it all together yet. Illinois takes down Wisconsin 34 to 10. Uh, Bo Pelini and the and his Illinois squad comes in against his former uh, former job in Wisconsin, takes him down pretty handily, and this game ends up resulting in Paul Christ being fired uh, over the weekend after after the Badgers fall. Uh, it, it's an interesting firing because I think Paul Chris was, was beloved. He is a Wisconsin guy, grew up in the area, was a Wisconsin fan. Like, you know, it, it's, it's an interesting firing also from the standpoint that, you know, his all-time record at Wisconsin wasn't horrible and he's kind of a perennial nine-game winner, but it, it's apparent that with the poor start this season that the Badgers have had, and the unmet expectations for Wisconsin's football team. That, that's what led to this. So uh, another coaching position open uh, across the country. Maryland takes down Michigan State 27-13 to as Michigan State now drops their third game in a row. Uh, boy, things are not going well for Sparty right now, uh, whereas Maryland still continues to be that pesky team of the Big Ten after they gave Michigan such a fit last week, and then now hands Michigan State their third straight loss. And then Nebraska comes out with a win over Indiana 35-21. to uh, Don't really have much to say about that one there. Didn't watch it, but hey, Nebraska won by two touchdowns, so there you go. Big 12 scoreboard now, TCU over Oklahoma, 55-24. to This game had everybody talking. Uh, TCU showing how good of a team they can be. They're off to a great start this season. Uh, so, you know, they're another team to look out for in the Big 12, especially when you consider how Oklahoma State is doing right now. And then Oklahoma, uh, the last time Oklahoma allowed, you know, this much offense, uh, it was in the college football semifinal a few years ago against LSU, which is arguably one of the best offenses we've ever seen in college football. But now they're just out here doing it in week five to TCU, which is no slight to TCU, but it goes to show the current state of Oklahoma's defense. Uh, Brett Venables has some work to do. Um, he, you know, he of course is a defensive, you know, minded coach through and through, but there is a lot of work to be done here as the Sooners drop their second in a row. And at, at this point, you can pretty much kiss any, any conference championship or, you know, or significant postseason play goodbye if you're the Sooners because two losses in a row like that, that that pretty much puts the nail in the coffin for you uh Kansas State over Texas Tech 37 to 28 Kansas State continues to roll on with a very solid season uh Kansas over Iowa State 14 to 11 the Jayhawks remain undefeated and now come into this season ranked and actually will host game day this Saturday of all things as they host TCU, a battle of undefeated teams in the Big 12. That'll be a fun one to watch. 
And then Texas over West Virginia, 38-20. to Texas uh, continuing to find itself, even without Quinn Ewers, uh, taking down a West Virginia team that is really just sputtering at this point in the year. Pac-12 scores USC over Arizona State, 42-25. Pretty straightforward win for the Trojans. Utah over Oregon State, 42-16, as the Utes continue to try to build back up their resume uh, after a couple of rough patches here on the year. Oregon over Stanford, 45-27. Stanford really just not, not off to a great start. Haven't had a solid season in many years now, so look, be on the lookout for maybe some uh, some turnover within that program because they just they, they don't feel like they're really going anywhere at this point. Washington State over Cal, twenty eight to nine, kind of a blowout there. Not not much uh, any anything significant really. And then uh, Arizona over Colorado, forty three to twenty, but a game that saw Colorado head coach Carl Durrell fired. Uh, over the weekend so you know we talked about it a few weeks ago about how you had to wonder how hard pressed Colorado would be to fire their head coach given his buyout situation well there you go Uh, Carl Durrell is fired Colorado still without a win on the year Uh, just an ugly 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 football program at this point Uh, so you know they have to probably, they're probably just kind of scrapping this season, but you have to wonder where they'll go next year. But, you know, this already opens up so many coaching jobs going into the offseason coming up. So it, there, there's going to be a lot of talk going on. A quick look at the top 25. New additions to the top 25 this week include LSU, Cincinnati, Mississippi State, and Syracuse. Also, you've got Kansas at 19, UCLA 18, and TCU 17. So, shout out to those three programs for coming in after being unranked last week. Uh, Dropouts of the top 25, Arkansas, Baylor, Florida State, Minnesota, Oklahoma, Texas A&M. Biggest drops in the top 25, Washington drops 15-21, to NC State 10-14, to and Kentucky 7-13. to And your biggest risers in the top 25, Ole Miss goes from 14-9, to Wake Forest 22-15, to and Kansas State from 25 to to 20. And of course, there is the shuffle at the top this week as Alabama and Georgia swap places. Alabama is now your new number one team after taking down Arkansas. Georgia drops to number two after getting by Missouri. Uh, probably won't be the last time we see those two teams swap back and forth given how they're both playing right now. You know, I think for all things considered, I still believe Georgia is the better of the two at this point. Uh, but, you know, Georgia's got a got a find more consistency like they did through the first three weeks of the season after a you know a win is a win but a couple of rough wins have obviously hurt them within the rankings that's all i've got here for the opening rant let's let's uh dive into the first segment as we do each and every single week folks this is four down territory first down there are quite a few well-known rivalry games in the big 12 from Bedlam, which is Oklahoma versus Oklahoma State, to, of course, the Red River rivalry, Oklahoma and Texas, or the Sunflower Showdown, Kansas versus Kansas State, or the Revivalry, which is TCU versus Baylor. But sometime around 2009, Kansas State and Iowa State coined their rivalry game Farmageddon because of the agriculture background of the two land-grant universities. So where did the Farmageddon moniker come from? 
Well, it happened around the time that the program scheduled two neutral site games at Arrowhead Stadium in 2009 and 2010. The two Big 12 rivals have played every year since 1917, making this, this, making this series the eighth longest continuous series in college football history and the longest never interrupted series in college football history. These two teams have played through the 1918 flu pandemic and World War II, which interrupted quite a few other historical series. The win-loss records in the series are very close. Iowa State has won 50 games and Kansas State has won 49 games. There have been four ties, and since Bill Snyder arrived in Manhattan in 1989, Kansas State holds a 25-6 record in the series, which, of course, meant Iowa State fans were glad Bill Snyder retired when he did. But the thing about this series recently are the weird things that have happened during many of the games. Close games make for a lot of the drama, with five of the last six games decided by five or, few po- five or few fewer points. The ball has bounced Kansas State's way lately, with the Wildcats winning 11 of the last 12 meetings. On October 3, 2009 in Kansas City, the first Farmageddon game, Iowa State scored a touchdown with a little over a minute left to pull within a point of Kansas State. Kansas State's Emmanuel Lemur blocked the extra point to seal the victory for K-State, and this was the first in a long line of close games and strange occurrences. On November 21, 2015 in Manhattan, Iowa State led 35-21 at halftime and led 35-28 with a little more than a minute left in the game. The Cyclones had the ball with a first down, and all they had to do was run the ball a few times to run the clock out and wrapped up the victory. But then suddenly, Iowa State fumbled, and Kansas State recovered with a minute 31 left. Kansas State marched down the field and scored a touchdown to tie it up. On Iowa State's possession following the kickoff, Kansas State's sacked the quarterback on second down, forcing a fumble that was recovered by the Wildcats. And this put Kansas State in position to kick a game-winning field goal as time expired in what was an unbelievable come-from-behind victory that was the impetus to Paul Rhodes getting fired as Iowa State coached the very next day. On November 25th, 2017 in Manhattan, Iowa State led 19-17 in the fourth quarter. Kansas State scored a touchdown with about six minutes left in the game to pull within five points at 19-14. Iowa State got the ball back and was moving the ball methodically down the field. Kansas State broke up an Iowa State pass on third down, and Iowa State was forced to punt back to Kansas State with a couple minutes left. And then suddenly a game-winning drive, there was a game-winning drive in which Kansas State scored a touchdown on the very last play to win 20-19. On November... On November 24th, 2018 in Ames, Iowa State was down 38-21 to to Kansas State before rallying to score three straight touchdowns and win 42-38. It was not typical for a Bill Snyder Wildcat team to lose this way, and he was kind of stumped after the game, saying, quote, I've never lost a ball game that way. I'll have to dissect it. I can't tell you what my feelings are right now. Matt Campbell, on the other hand, was very complimentary of his team, saying, Quote, this team has never disappointed me. We're not flashy, we're not pretty, but you better not count us out. This was Bill Snyder's last game he ever coached at Kansas State. The next Farmageddon Clash takes place this Saturday. Second down. The following is a report from CBS Sports. Last month, a professional organization representing FBS athletic directors issued what amounted to be a veiled ultimatum. 
the overwhelming majority of athletic directors at a Lead One Association meeting in Washington, D.C. had a, quote, strong preference. The NCAA continue running major college football if the association, quote, can be more streamlined and less bureaucratic. Or else, what? The answer has opened a door to perhaps not a breakaway of major college football and basketball, but at least forming a picture of what a new structure would look like. A growing number of those ADs believe they have a unique and powerful hammer as leverage if the NCAA does not clean up its act. If not, a lead one executive said, we would explore other options. Among those applied, uh, implied options is leveraging schools' participation in the NCAA tournament. While a separate basketball tournament operated outside of the NCAA isn't likely anytime soon, the athletic director's realization that they could create such an event provides a picture as to how the NCAA's two biggest sports will be run in the future. A football breakaway has been discussed. It is more likely than one in basketball as the NCAA's power diminishes as a membership has demanded a reorganization of the 117-year-old organization. Approximately 80 FBS athletic directors traveled to Lead One's mid-September meeting in, in person. Another 20 participated virtually, putting 100 out of the 131 total in attendance. They saw two compelling pres- presentations made by former West Virginia AD and NCAA executive Oliver Luck and North Carolina Associate Professor, professor of Sports Administration Arian Waite. One presentation was a model with college football continuing to operate inside the NCAA. The other showed the FBS going completely independent of the NCAA, according to a source. Basketball is involved in the discussion because the revenue from the NCAA tournament is used by the association to essentially run major college football. The NCAA does not sponsor an FBS championship. Meanwhile, the tournament is the mother's milk of the association itself, bringing approximately $800 million per year. Approximately 80% of that goes back to the members. The increase of oversight by major college sports has been compared to a, quote, discharge petition. In parliamentary procedure, such an act means bringing a bill to the floor for a vote without a report from a committee. In this case, that committee represents the bureaucracy of the NCAA. Lead One is essentially an advisory group when it comes to NCAA matters. Ohio State AD Gene Smith raised eyebrows last summer when he suggested to ESPN that the college football playoff take over the FBS. He was not alone either. In December 2020, the reform-minded Knight Commission essentially suggested the same thing. Lead One and its members hope to gain more power over major college sports as the NCAA remakes itself through a rewritten constitution that will give more power to the schools. To that end, Lead One has encouraged to see its views were taking hold recently when the NCAA adopted seven of its 11 recommendations. Among those was the abolition of the much-criticized independent accountability resolution process. The future of basketball was not discussed formally last month. Various college officials came out of that Lead One meeting contending that there is no grant of rights between Division I schools and the NCAA that binds them to play in March Madness. The grant of rights is most commonly known as a document school sign that assigns their television rights to their conference. Lead One executives and other ADs confirmed to CBS Sports that there is no such binding document. When asked what binds those schools to the tournament, NCAA General Counsel Scott Beerby referred CBS Sports to Bylaw 31, 
It states, eligible members in a sport will participate, if selected, in the NCAA championship or in no postseason in that sport. While there is no overt movement for Division I to stage its own basketball tournament, the National Association of Basketball Coaches is on record as saying it would like to establish a governing board of the game, but not but but within the NCAA structure. Most importantly, for the first time during the Lead One meeting, a price tag was put on what it would take to run the FBS. $65 million annually. That figure was revealed during a slide presentation by Kathleen McNeely, the NCAA's former CFO and currently a Lead One consultant. An outside entity taking over the FBS would be less about affordability and more about liability. That $65 million represents 10% of the current annual CFP payout, which is $600 million, and even less, about 4%, of the projected annual payout in an expanded 12-team college football playoff field. However, the NCAA has, been, has long been target practice for attorneys seeking retribution for clients with catastrophic injuries. The association also spends millions annually defending itself in lawsuits aimed at the NCAA and conferences. As mentioned, building a tournament outside the NCAA structure would be a massive lift, and there is little indication that college presidents who have the ultimate key are dissatisfied enough to make such a dramatic move. However, acknowledging the fact that they could reflects some of the satisfaction. Football remains key because its presence within the system was a significant reason that the NCAA generated a record $1.16 billion in revenue last season. Division I is made up of 351 members, many of whom derive a large part of their budget from NCAA revenue distribution, a large portion of which comes from the tournament. But as part of the massive NCAA reorganization that's in progress, Power 5 schools hope to have more input into how the NCAA is run. That's where the streamlining of governance comes in. Short of a breakaway, football and basketball could be parceled into different pieces split between the NCAA and the schools. One source suggested getting rid of the NCAA Football Oversight Committee, which is responsible for kicking legislation upstairs to the NCAA Council. The composition of the committee is part of the problem for Power 5 administrators. Only five of the 18 members are from Power 5 schools. The new FBS governing board for the entire sport could be half that size. For example, NCAA eligibility and amateurism are largely dead discussion points. Name, image, and likeness rules have wiped out whatever was left of the collegiate or amateurism model. Initial eligibility is largely being left up to schools. There is a movement within Lead One that would mimic what the Knight Commissioner has proposed, establish a board that would at least oversee the sport and answer to what was termed a commissioner or CEO of major college football. CBS Sports took a deep dive into a potential football breakaway in June. The $65 million needed to make such a move is believed to be the first time a number has been attached to the FBS. And that's where the conflict emerges. Over the years, bowl games, the BCS, college football playoff have been stewards of major college football. The NCAA basically set play and practice rules and provided catastrophic insurance while overseeing the sport with its enforcement department. As the NCAA became less relevant and powerful in recent years, many questioned why the association should oversee FBS at all. 
for an entity to take over the FBS, it would inherit it would inherit the legal liability estimated by McNeely to be at least ten million dollars annually. That is not counting any massive legal settlement that might impact the NCAA's legal exposure in any given year. She warned. The advantage of that arrangement is that the NCAA remaining a quote legal shield against all incoming litigation. There is also health and welfare insurance, officiating and rules oversight involved in that $65 million. So all of it makes it unlikely a third party would take over the entirety of the FBS. The Knight Commission continues to argue that the FBS schools receive NCAA revenue and have a weighted voting advantage in governance, despite being a sport that, again, the association basically didn't sponsor. The commission pointed out that the NCAA, quote, received $0 in revenue from FBS football, but assumes legal liability and catastrophic insurance cost. Instead, the conferences themselves decide how to divide the CFP revenue, 78% of which goes to Power 5 conferences. In 2010, NCAA signed a 14-year, $10.8 billion agreement with CBS and Turner to televise the NCAA tournament. An eight-year extension was signed in 2016 that takes the contract through, through 2032. With the rapidly changing television landscape, critics said NCAA President Mark Emmert signed a deal that eventually would be undervalued in the marketplace. The Big Ten alone signed a media rights deal in August for more than $8 billion over seven years. And so while it's not going to be an immediate change, the conversation continues to swirl. What is the future of the NCAA? Third down. The biggest positive from Saturday's game at Davis Wade Stadium for Texas A&M was when the clock struck zero. Now comes the hard part, accepting the reality of the 2022 season. The number 17 Aggies will not be going to the college football playoff on New Year's Eve. Barring a complete implosion from Mississippi State, Ole Miss, and Alabama, A&M will not be playing in Atlanta for the SEC championship on December 3rd. All the promise and potential showed in back-to-back top 15 wins the previous two weeks by A&M's offense went out the window in a 42-24 loss to Mississippi State. Max Johnson was under duress most of the afternoon. Receivers couldn't get open. The defense couldn't contain the Bulldogs on third down. It's back to the drawing board now for Jim Fisher. Jimbo Fisher. Even then, will things change? He said after the game, we're not where we want to be. We have to get better. The Aggies have seen their fair share of troubles against Mike Leach's air raid offense well before he was hired to replace Joe Moorhead in 2020. Last season, the Bulldogs marched up and down Kyle Field behind Will Rogers' arm for a 26-22 victory. New location, same results. Rogers, who threw for 408 yards and three touchdowns last October, nearly duplicated his success throwing for 329 yards and three touchdowns in front of a rowdy house in Starkville. Perhaps the only thing more infuriating to Texas A&M fans than the ringing of cowbells for three hours was Jimbo Fisher's reluctance to change his offensive personnel. Drives moved slowly, but ended fast, usually found in the form of punts instead of points. Prior to the midway point of the second quarter, A&M had yet to cross the 50-yard line, And even when the Aggies entered Bulldog territory, things soured quickly. Perhaps the second half was when things would come together. 
a one-yard touchdown run by running back Dylan Johnson ended that that thought with still 12 minutes remaining in the game. And then switching quarterbacks did little to change the outcome. Johnson unfortunately suffered a hand injury with eight minutes remaining, forcing Fisher to trust redshirt sophomore Haynes King to step up. King scampered his way to the end zone, uh, scoring a four-yard touchdown to make it 28-17 with seven minutes on the clock. One play and a 75-yard pass to Ra-Ra Thomas later, the Bulldogs take back seven points and extend their lead to 18. The attention for short terms turns to Alabama. Last season, Fisher and the Aggies used the loss to Mississippi State to fuel as fuel to help pick up a 41-38 upset win at Kyle Field. Playing at Bryant-Denny Stadium is a whole different atmosphere. Long-term, all eyes are on Fisher. Entering Saturday, the Aggies ranked dead last among SEC teams in total offense, passing offense, and scoring. And while A&M scored a season-high 24 points, 14 came when the Bulldogs held a 14-point lead or higher for the remainder of the game. Fisher said following A&M's 17-14 loss to Appalachian State that he'd be willing to relinquish the play calling if it gave A&M its best chance to win. For two weeks, mistakes made by opponents silenced the critics on if it was time to hand over the play sheet. A road trip to Starkville now has fans clamoring for change, especially on offense. The Aggies once again fell short to Leach, who improves to 9-4 all-time against A&M. If Fisher was honest about being willing to make a change, now would be the time. And if not now, when? Said Fisher, the system and plays are there, we just have to execute and coach them better. It's the same system a lot of people use, we just have to pick it up and go. Quick side note, through 53 games at Texas A&M, Jimbo Fisher and Kevin Sumlin both have the same record of 36-17. and 17. Just going to leave that there. Fourth down. James Madison's lack of eligibility for postseason play, in which the Sunbelt Conference Championship game and bowl season are off limits to the Dukes this year, became a pressing issue quicker than could have been expected. But as one of the highest ranked teams in a non-autonomy conference, it is bound to be a hot topic as long as JMU keeps winning. For most fans, the NCAA rules that create a transition period for schools moving up a division seems counterintuitive, and JMU coach Kurt Signetti called it, quote, antiquated Monday during the Sunbelt teleconference. Shouldn't a team moving up be at somewhat of a competitive disadvantage? If it is good enough to qualify for the postseason in its first couple of years, why not reward that team in question? At first glance, it can look like another case of the NCAA creating a policy because it's in love with the size of its own rule book, but there's actually a reasonable thought behind this one, at least in theory, if not in practice. The powers that be want schools making the decision to move up to be prepared and all in for the long haul. Moving from FCS to FBS or Division II to Division I is a huge, costly decision that shouldn't be made on a whim or for superficial reasons. The NCAA wants programs that make the move to do, well, well, like JMU has. The Dukes are in the first year of what is normally a two-year transition from FCS to FBS. Usually during that first year, teams moving up play a mixed schedule split roughly evenly between FCS and FBS opponents and are ineligible for postseason play at either level. 
Moving from Division Two to Division One requires a four-year transition that keeps programs out of the NCAA basketball tournament, which is where the potential for a big payday is for most schools. But JMU is a unique case. The Dukes were ushered into the Sunbelt Conference at warp speed and are playing 11 games this season, 10 against FBS opponents with a full SBC schedule. James Madison was also remarkably close to meeting the FBS limit of 85 scholarships compared to 63 in FCS in its first season, thanks in part to loosened restrictions during COVID-19. The Dukes plan to finalize an application this winter for a waiver that fast-tracks the transition period and essentially counts this as year two. That JMU is off to such a hot start only further proves the Dukes were right to make the move, one that that they had an opportunity to make around 2013, but turned down to spend time building up the budget and facilities to further prepare for initial success. It would be unfortunate if JMU continues to rack up victories and can't celebrate with a trip to a bowl game. It would be topic of national conversations if the Dukes remain on the top of the Sunbelt East standings, but the second place team advances to the conference title game. Right now, among teams from non-autonomous conferences chasing an automatic invitation to a New Year's Six bowl game, only Cincinnati ranks ahead of JMU in the AP and coaches poll. A fully eligible Dukes team would be in the mix to spend its holiday season at the Cotton Bowl. But JMU knew this was the deal and was thinking long-term both when it turned down the Sunbelt almost a decade ago and when it accepted the invitation last fall. That's exactly the kind of responsibility NCAA meant to encourage with the transition rules. But even still, if the Dukes' fast start begins to look like a potential Cinderella run that in different circumstances might have meant crushing might have meant crashing the party. Don't be surprised if James Madison and the Sunbelt decide to appeal for some kind of exception. That's not a decision that will come unless the Dukes get to at least 7 and 0, but it's already on the minds of people who matter. It's hard to say if one would ever be granted and again this policy is actually well intentioned. But at this point the best argument against the rule is that it's not working. JMU made the jump right away, but other schools are making much riskier short-sighted moves. Conference USA, in desperation mode after losing its most appealing schools to the Sun Belt and American Athletic Conference, extended invitations to FCS programs Sam Houston and Jacksonville State. Both schools accepted and are preparing to join Conference USA next season. The Bearcats and Gamecocks jumped on the opportunity when it came about, but neither resembled a successful FBS program in terms of fan support and facilities. JMU players had to use an outdoor tent as a locker room when they visited Sam Houston a couple of seasons ago. Each has a budget that, that's a fraction of the nearly $60 million a year that the Dukes spent on athletics even before making the move. Even Sam Houston coach Casey Keeler expressed doubts the program was ready when the initial Conference USA offer came, but... Perhaps if it doesn't work out, Sam Houston and Jacksonville State could come back down. That, though, exactly the kind of bouncing around the transition rule is designed to prevent. But the bright lights in the big stage were too tempting, and it looks like the Conference USA duo might not be alone. Jackson State Deion Sanders hinted recently that he'd like to see his program make the move. The Tigers' success since hiring the Pro Football Hall of Famer, signing five-star recruits, and winning quite a few games is impressive. But Jackson State, in its current form, would be financially the poorest FBS program in the country by a wide margin. 
And what happens when Sanders inevitably moves on to a big-time program? And it's not just a football issue. According to recent reports, Lemoyne College in upstate New York plans to move from Division II to Division I. The Dolphins used to, comp- used to compete in Division I in some sports, but not others before the NCAA outlawed that practice for all but a few programs that are grandfathered in. No doubt seeing a small northeastern school such as St. Peter's make a run in the NCAA tournament, taking in all the money and exposure that goes with it, was appealing to Lemoyne. But Lemoyne's school profile and athletic budget is much more reminiscent of Hartford, which is moving from D1 to D3, than Bryant, which has made a, recent, made a reasonably successful transition into Division One. Taking it all into account, might the NCAA give JMU a break should the victories continue? It's anybody's guess. But the overarching trend with the most NCAA decisions of late is athlete-friendly, and a wide-angle view of the issue can only help the Duke's case. And now, at this time, as we do each and every single week, we're going to send things over to our official mascot correspondent, Alex Butler, for this week's Mascot Minute. Hey everybody, this is Alex Butler here with this week's Mascot Minute, where we take a deep dive into some of your favorite collegiate mascots. This week, we're featuring the mascot from Texas Christian University, the Horned Frog. The reptile became Texas Christian University's mascot after its appearance in the school's yearbook publication. Its annual was named the Horned Frog in 1887 and was selected over the other option, the Cactus. Gradually, the name leaked into the athletic department and sports teams began being called the Horned Frogs as well. Legend says that the name was selected for the yearbook after a group of horny toads showed up during the football team's first practice. Other stories say that the name came from a school dean in the 1980s who selected it to replace the former nickname for the team, which had been the timid-sounding Fightin' Preacher Boys. He picked a name that represented Texas and the Southwest, and a horned frog was the natural pick. The costumed mascot's version is called the Super Frog and began appearing at sports events in 1979. When picking the costume, school's officials said that they wanted a mascot the crowd could laugh with instead of laughing at. Unfortunately, the range and population of this special lizard has declined significantly. Older Texas natives are happy to tell you about the days when you would find them all over, but the introduction of fire ants and widespread use of pesticides has depleted their main food source, the harvester ant. This species was placed on the endangered species list in 1977. Luckily, TCU's College of Science and Engineering is collaborating with their friends at Texas A&M, the Texas Park and Wildlife Department, and the San Antonio Zoo to create and research a lizard factory to reintroduce harvester ants and horned frogs back into parts of central Texas. By the way, horned frogs are used to comebacks. In 2015, TCU baseball overcame an 8-1 deficit in the 8th inning to beat North Carolina State in the Fort Worth Regional. They would eventually go on to the College World Series. Months later, in the 2016 Alamo Bowl, down 31-0 halftime to Oregon, TCU pulled off a miracle in defeating the Ducks in triple overtime. It tied the record for biggest comeback in bowl history. Are there any mascots that you'd like us to feature on the show? Hit us up at Chatting Yardage on Twitter and let us know. Once again, this has been Alex Butler with your Mascot Minute. Six, six. 
It is now time for this week's Pick 6 Games of the Week. Six games that I find interesting and I believe you should too. First game of the week that you should be paying attention to is number 17 TCU going up against number 19 Kansas. This is a 12 p.m. start on Saturday on FS1 and is also the site of College Game Day this week. Uh, TCU off to a tremendous start this season. Having taken down a couple of really good teams so far. Kansas, meanwhile, bit of a surprising uh, team to this point in the year. Undefeated already, so this is definitely a uh, you know a game that is going to show whether or not either of these teams are for real. You know, Kansas has a tremendous offense. TCU is as well-rounded of a team as you're going to find, especially in the Big 12. So, a uh, big game for both of these. Again, that is a 12 p.m. start on FS1. Game 2 of the week. Number 8, Tennessee, going up against number 25, LSU. 12 p.m. start on ESPN. Uh, Tennessee has suddenly found itself in the top 10 here this season, uh, undefeated on the year already, but now taking on their biggest challenger yet in an LSU team that I think still has a lot of questions, a lot of a lot of doubts uh, as far as this team goes. Uh, you know, they, they've been undefeated since, since they lost their week one contest to Florida State. Uh, they had a they had a come from behind win against Mississippi State. Had another come from behind win last week against Auburn. Whereas you know Tennessee, their toughest opponent that they've had so far is Florida, who's not off to necessarily a, a great run right now, uh, beyond the first week of their season. So. It'll be an interesting matchup just to see how good Tennessee is, especially going to a place like LSU uh, for your first road game uh, in the SEC. Uh, you know, LSU is always going to be one of the toughest places to play in the entire country. It's also a daytime game, uh, which, you know, this time of year, even in Louisiana, still incredibly hot, still incredibly humid especially more so than in Tennessee probably is right now. So uh, it'll be an interesting one to watch and one that, you know, if Tennessee can win, then I think you have to look at them as a legit team. Otherwise, you know, I think there's still a lot of murmurs out there that they might be overrated right now. Third game of the week, Texas at Oklahoma, the Red River Shootout. Uh, taking place as it does each and every single year during the state fair. Uh, 12 p.m. start on ABC. First time in a long time that both of these teams are playing each other and not ranked. Uh, you know, Texas, I think, it still has high hopes to having a good season despite a rough couple of losses. One to Alabama, one uh, to, to, Tex, to Texas Tech. Yeah, that's right, Texas Tech. I don't know why I questioned that. We had that on pick six for that week. Uh, but, you know, th- this is a game that uh, I think both teams are looking to kind of, you know, get on the right track. Oklahoma especially coming off of two straight losses. Who knows when the last time they lost three in a row in, in the regular season was. It's been a long time. And then Texas, of course, you know, would love to be able to take this game, uh, you know, it being, it, being it as a big-time rivalry game. Um, but, you know, the, I Despite them not being ranked, this is still going to be one of the games that's going to have a lot of eyeballs on it this Saturday. Uh, Game four of the week, number 11, Utah, going up against number 18, UCLA. 3.30 p.m. start on Fox. UCLA finally cracking the top 25, still undefeated on the season after taking down Washington last Friday night in what was a really good game. BYU, on on the other hand, you know, really having, really putting it together an impressive season, uh, looking, or not BYU, Utah, Utah, that other, uh, 
team from Utah. Uh, Utah, you know, of course, had a, had a rough loss to start off the year, but since then has really rolled through the competition and is quickly finding themselves inching back closer to the top ten. Uh, heavy implications in this one for the Pac-12 and what it's going to mean for the rest of the season, um, you know, especially as Oregon really starts to find itself uh, here at the midpoint of the year. But should be a good clash there uh, on at 3.30 on Fox. Game number five this week, number 16, BYU. There it is. That's why I accidentally said BYU a moment ago because they're right underneath this game. BYU going up against Notre Dame, a ballad, or a battle, rather. I don't expect both teams to start singing songs to us. Uh, although Notre Dame might want to start singing some songs. Uh, BYU at Notre Dame, a battle of the independents. Um, you know, Notre Dame, this would be a huge win for them if they were to be able to pull this off as they try to right the ship on what was an ugly start to the season. BYU, on the other hand, uh, you know, looking to really get back to the top 10. Um, and after, you know, after uh, a loss to Oregon three weeks ago, uh, I think they're trying to get themselves back into the conversation of being a top team. And, you know, there were high hopes uh, for the Brigham Young Cougars coming into this season. So, uh, you know, a, a good game there that Notre Dame really can't afford to lose, um, you know, with two losses already on the season. BYU does, you know, really needs to win this one to further establish themselves. So uh, a good game to watch there on NBC. And, you know, it has, has a bit of interest to it in terms of independent teams go. And then finally, the sixth game of the week, one that I think a lot of people have had circled on their calendars for many, many weeks uh, especially since the season even started, Texas A&M at number one Alabama on 8 p.m. Uh, at 8 p.m. on CBS. Now, Alabama, of course, is heavily favored in this one. Uh, Alabama should be an outright favorite in this one, you know. But I think the interest here, number one, is how does Texas A&M rebound after another bad loss last week? Uh, especially after it has now come out since we recorded that they are going to have to turn to Haynes King. Uh, with their starting quarterback being injured with a broken hand, uh, it, so some interesting, interesting things there. And then I think you know, call it, call it a, a sick mind, if you will. But I think there's a lot of interest in just seeing how bad Alabama might be able to beat Texas A&M and pretty much destroy what is left of the remnants of their season. Uh, so, you know, I think still a fun matchup, one that you could turn on, you know, on Saturday night. There's nothing really else on, but I don't expect it to be a pretty game, but I expect there's still to be a lot of conversation to come out of it. So uh, that is your pick six games of the week. As always, if you follow the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage, uh, there will be a graphic posted on Friday, not too long after the show is going to be released this week. Sorry about the late release time on this one. Uh, along with some corresponding polls to go with this, make your voices heard. Let me know what you're going to be watching over the weekend. Be part of the conversation at Chatting Yardage. The extra point. Extra point this week goes to a team that we've already mentioned earlier in the show, but this was also a strong suggestion by a friend of the show, Will. Uh, he suggested to give an extra point to Georgia Tech, who, despite being a 21.5 point underdog this past Saturday against Pitt, came out with a huge victory downing the Panthers in Pittsburgh. So congratulations to Georgia Tech on picking up what is a big win, especially the week after firing head coach Jeff Collins and being able to turn it around and defeat an in-conference rival. 
So playing us out this week are the Georgia Tech Marching Yellow Jackets with both of their fight songs, Ramblin' Wreck and White and Gold. Until next week, I'm Cam Matthews. This has been the Chatting Yardage Podcast, brought to you by Sports Drink. Want to be part of the conversation? Follow the show on Twitter at Chatting Yardage. We'll see you next week for another brand new episode.